0: Welcome to the Health Rules Podcast. This is our third episode. I am Dr. Dave Donahue. I am your host, and I am a primary care internal medicine physician and a board-certified lifestyle medicine physician and a fellow of the American College of Physicians. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Dave, you moron. The world has plenty of health-related podcasts. We don't need another one. And you've been thinking this week after week after week. But you continue to be correct. The world has plenty of health-related podcasts. But there are a few things that we are doing differently here. First, each episode we have a mission, a goal to build something with persistent value, something that you can use to stay healthy. Each episode we build a checklist containing the optimal steps that you can follow to stay healthy in a particular area. Second, we... Try to be as truthful and objective as we possibly can. And I think that's important in this age of disinformation that we live in, where it's increasingly common that people believe it's okay to craft your perception of reality around your preconceived ideology or belief system. That's called confirmation bias. And unfortunately, the human brain is hugely subject to it. So in this podcast, we will stay as close to the science as possible. I pledge to you that we will challenge our assumptions and go wherever the preponderance of evidence takes us. Third, in the Health Rules podcast, we take a big picture perspective. So there's another kind of bias called availability bias, which makes humans think about what we already know. So I think this kind of bias really clouds our thinking in many arenas, but especially in healthcare. Traditional medicine knows tests and drugs and procedures and visits with the clinician. So that's what you will find our guidelines and standards of care follow. Traditional medicine does not know much about the science around nutrition, healthy relationships, exercise, sleep, behavior change, or even doing nothing. Tincture of time, as we call it. Let's hold off on that intervention and see what happens. Oftentimes that turns out to be the best medicine. But it's not really what our healthcare system is geared up to do. So each episode, we interview an expert in their field, someone who knows the science inside and out, and has experience treating people in this area. We will bring the best that allopathic traditional medicine has to offer, plus knowledge from healthcare delivery science, which finds that more healthcare is not always better. We will also bring in a reality check from the fields of lifestyle medicine and preventive medicine to make sure we are not barking up the wrong, traditional-minded, or profit-driven tree. Finally, we interpret all of the above through the lens of what I call sustainability medicine, which holds that the health of the individual, the health of the environment, and the health of the planet are interdependent, and that it really does matter if, if we are just trashing the environment. Uh, and, and so. The Health Rules podcast is brought to, you, brought to you by healthrules.org. The fruits of each episode is stored on the website at healthrules.org slash podcast. So there you can find a page devoted to a given podcast episode. And on that page, we will store the checklist that we built. We will store a printable version of it, that, like a handout that you can print out and put up on your wall or bring to your doctor visit or share with your postal carrier or your clergy or your bank teller or whoever you want to share it with. How about your significant other? And, and, and facilitate a discussion so that you can explore whether the, the elements of our checklists pertain to you. So this episode is heavily rooted in the field of healthcare delivery science. Our topic is patient safety. It is a super important topic. Some researchers even think it's the third leading cause of death, that's number three in the United States. Now, most in the field regard that as a bit of hyperbole. It's probably not quite that bad, but everybody agrees that it is a very big problem and causes far more adverse outcomes, and yes, even deaths, than it should. So we are super privileged to have a real world expert in the field of patient safety as our guest, Dr. Jennifer Myers. So, Dr. Myers is a professor of clinical medicine. She is the director of the Center for Healthcare Improvement and Patient Safety, CHIPS, at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And she's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, and she's a fellow in hospital medicine in the Society for Hospital Medicine. So, here's the deal. When you receive health care, there is risk. Almost everything we do in healthcare care carries sometimes pretty significant possibility of error or imperfect care. S- many have attempted to quantify the the impact of error in medicine or the rate of error in medicine. The common finding is that it is a very big problem. Ho- errors in the hospital setting happen about, oh, we think about 3% of the time, and they are deadly somewhere somewhere around 6% or 13% of the time, depending on the study. The AHRQ estimates that one in eight Medicare patients in the United States experience a medical error during a given hospitalization. In an outpatient setting, um, it's it's been found that the recommended treatments are only followed about 55% of the time. So that's like half the time we don't do what we were supposed to do. So there's a newish field of medicine to the rescue, and it's called patient safety. Organizations like Campaign Zero and government bodies like AHRQ have identified some of the best practices to minimize medical error and maximize quality of care. There's a growing body of research in this field, which Dr. Myers is an expert in and has published herself. The recurring theme of what's the solution is to take an active role in your health care. Communicate a lot. Ask questions, question decisions that have been made, and track events, like write things down. Remember, understand what happened, and write it down, and ask if you don't understand. Don't assume that your healthcare team has seen the results of a recent test or that they have acted on them properly. So it can feel frightening to ask questions of your healthcare team, but it it is essential to keeping yourself safe. Healthcare providers need to make a welcoming environment and some do this better than others. But there's also one other kind of error that is seldom discussed or researched even in the field of patient safety. And it is the failure to enact what is possible through behavior change. So I'm wearing my lifestyle medicine hat here, but in many ways modern healthcare system is a hammer that looks to all of our health problems as nails that need hammering with tests, medications and procedures. Lifestyle medicine practitioners observe that modern traditional healthcare care systematically omits discussions on how profoundly beneficial behavior change can be when done right. So let's say I see a, problem who, a patient who's got sleep problems. And let's say I see that person 25 times in my career, and never once do I explore the behaviors that can improve sleep quality. Instead, I just prescribe sleeping pills every time or refill the, the same sleeping pill prescription over and over and over. But knowing what we do about sleeping pills, the potential harm of sleeping pills, the fact that none have been found to improve quality of restfulness or sleep, and they carry significant risk, that certainly feels like an error to me. Or what if I see a patient who has just been diagnosed with type two diabetes? Knowing what I do about lifestyle medicine, I know that I should mention that this is a major teachable moment, that this devastating, normally lifelong disease can actually be fairly easily reverse with the right lifestyle changes, especially a change to a whole food plant-based diet, especially here at the outset, at the beginning of this disease. If I fail to mention that at this visit, and if I fail to mention it every subsequent visit, then that to me is not just a medical error, it is a series of repeated epic fails. So this plays out more commonly than you would imagine. A person with chronic reflux is kept on proton pump inhibitors their entire life when simply stopping coffee intake may have solved the problem, or a person who endures major depression for decades despite treatment with a bunch of antidepressants, but when coaching and counseling around exercise could have resolved their depression early on. So nobody is perfect. Certainly I am not perfect. Far from it. Our healthcare system is no exception either. And the healthcare system can do so much good, but inadvertently, sometimes it can do so much harm also. Most of us will have to engage with the healthcare industry eventually. So I hope that in this discussion, Dr. Jennifer Myers and I are able to give you some tools that you can use to help you engage with it safely. So let's get started. Dr. Jennifer Myers, welcome to the Health Rules Podcast. (laughs) thumbs up. Hey, this is a podcast only. You got to say something, right? They can't. Okay. They
1: can't, All right. Um, well, well. thanks, Dr. Donahue. <laughs> I am uh, honored to be here uh, and to share some tips and thoughts about patient safety with you and your audience today.
0: Awesome. So um, full disclosure, Jen and I go way back. This is, you're a close friend. And so uh, this will be very informal and fun discussion and i have to say i've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time actually i've kind of wanted to have this conversation with you for years jen because um, you're this world expert on this field that d- didn't even exist until recently and I- i'm just dying to understand like how did how did you get at this at this place and and get at like what are the steps that we can follow because i think this is an area where we docs um, and, and we patients are, are, there's a lot of ignorance. So I'm really excited about it. So, but before we get there, kindly let us know, introduce yourself, who, are, who is Jen Myers?
1: Sure, um, well, uh, Jen is the proud mom of three teenage boys who are the center of my life. Uh, but when I'm not with them, I am a physician at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm a professor of clinical medicine and I've worn a couple of hats and had many titles over the years there uh, in patient safety and medical education. Um, Right now, I direct uh, Penn Center for Healthcare Improvement and patient safety, which houses a variety of educational programs in that field as well as sponsors uh, research in the field.
0: Awesome. And so in this capacity, you were doing a lot of stuff. You're doing a lot of research. You're doing a lot of clinical, right? Um, can, you, can you give me a flavor for like, what, is, what does a week look like from your,
1: yeah. From your career? Yeah. no, Certainly, I, I really feel um, uh, privileged, uh, Dave. You know, um, I get to teach, I get to take care of patients, and I get to do research, sort of the triple threat. Um, something that I always aspired to do when when I was in medical school and and I am uh, living the dream, as as they say. (laughs) Um, I see patients about a week, a month. It sort of averages out to that. I'm a hospitalist, so I do acute care medicine um, at the hospital. I was trained in general internal medicine. Um, And then um, I would say probably the other third of my time, I am running um, educational programs. I run a master's. And a certificate program in healthcare quality and safety. Um, so I oversee all aspects of that, from applications to admissions to curriculum to course design, um, and have a whole team uh, that works with me. And then um, I do a lot of work um, trying to align the healthcare system at Penn with what. Students and residents and nurses are are learning about the field of quality and safety. Um, So as you said earlier, it is still a relatively new field. So whatever we're doing on the healthcare system side, I'm always thinking about how do we integrate this into their learning curriculum. So I'll give you a a great example. Um, As you know, um, healthcare equity, right? And disparities in healthcare are front and center. Um, since the recent episodes uh, this past summer in this country. Sure. So, you know, we um, are learning, and and most of um, uh, the healthcare field knows a little bit about quality improvement. You know, maybe they've heard of a quality improvement effort in their area, but very few have done a healthcare quality improvement project on an equity problem, right? So my team is working with a team of experts uh, in health equity to design um, and implement a workshop to teach interprofessional teams in different clinical areas how to design and and execute a healthcare equity improvement project. So that's the kind of thing that um, I I love to do. Um, I love to design uh, new educational programs.
0: Mm. And you've gone ahead and done just that, right? You have a new master's program?
1: Yeah, yes. Uh, It is probably, not probably, but the 12th master's program in the country in this field. So as you said, um, you know, patient safety and quality were not words that anybody in healthcare used until 1999, 2000. And I'll go further and say that really the first decade of the patient safety movement, which was 2000 to 2010, was like, pushing, it's like Sisyphus, pushing the the boulder up the hill, even though the the words and the concepts were kind of trickling in, um, people didn't want to hear it. And it was still, you know, very foreign or unknown to people, and it didn't really feel good. Now, you know, now that we're in the second decade of the safety movement, you know, 2010 to 2020, or I should say at the end of it, you know, I don't feel like I need to wear my full metal jacket when I go in a room and talk about it. Like, pe- they generally accept that this is part, you know, improving the healthcare delivery system is 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 at least something we should be talking about. Um, but we still have a far way to go, as I'm sure you know.
0: So um, it's it's fascinating. I guess we went through a period where there was no such thing as medical error. Like, we 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 doctors are uh, infallible, and and then we came to realize, wow, it, there is a real thing, and, and that's gotten out into the public, right? A lot of people are quite familiar with that, that problem. Well, tell us, like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve with your career or what we're gonna to try to solve today in a very small part in the course of this conversation? Like, what is the scope of this problem of medical error?
1: Well, um, you know, it's it's large. It's, it's certainly larger than, um, the numbers we hear about because it's only as large as what is seen or, or what is reported. Um, so I, I always say that the numbers that an organization has around their preventable adverse events, which is sort of a more specific term for medical error, is only as good as their safety culture, right? If people aren't reporting things that are happening, how would you ever know about them? Right. Now, there are some more sophisticated tools that some organizations use where they try to comb through medical records for certain trigger words or phrases or medications that might signal a preventable adverse event, but they're, they're pretty time consuming. I would say I would frame it a, a little bit of a different way and say it's about the continuous pursuit of just trying to get better. hmm in delivering healthcare,
0: so we're not trying to stamp out medical error as this uh, leading killer. We're trying to improve systems instead.
1: Yes, I mean I think no one would argue. Um, you know, th- and it's very it's a little interesting historical fact here, Dave. You know, the Institute of Medicine put out six aims for healthcare quality in 1999. Uh, the acronym I use is is STEEP. So healthcare that is safe, timely effective, equitable, efficient, and patient-centered. So that's steep. Now, why do you think of all of those six aims, they chose safety to write their first book, which was To Air as Human, which was the first Institute of Medicine. that They didn't have to. They could have picked crossing the quality chasm. They could have picked um, the equity focus. They chose safety because of the wow factor and the just intolerability factor, right? Like they knew that it was gonna grab attention. And mm-hmm. it did, it did just that. So I think, you know, safety and quality, they often get meshed together because, you know, people heard about safety and then started learning about quality. But, but safety is really one of the six domains. Um, it's really like the foundational domain. But the you know it is it is interesting, and I know we don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but the science from which they come from is very different. So safety science, right, is born out of human factors engineering, and the pioneering work that was done by psychologists and human error cognition experts that resulted in the seminal work in England and other countries in Europe. That started to be practically used, frankly, in nuclear power, in naval aviation, and those types of like high reliability organizations where risk for error is needs to be close to zero. That's like the body of safety science. The body of quality improvement work really comes from manufacturing. You may have heard of like the Toyota and the lean production system and the Ford assembly line, and how do we? you know, continually try to have a defect-free process. Um, So anyway, so there, it's interesting that they, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that they come from, you know, different uh, ecological evolutionary backgrounds. (laughs) Okay,
0: that's interesting. All right, so, yeah, because I was always, you know, I always thought of some of your work in terms of, um, you know, stamping out medical error in, in my primitive thinking and- Yeah. And so I was thinking, you know, I'm thinking in terms of like er- errors of commission versus errors of omission, yeah. and and that that's one of the hats you, you wear, right? Is is addressing those those head on, clear cut errors and, and right and learning from them and communicating them and all that.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, for uh, a decade I was um, the patient safety officer okay. at the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania. That you know, prior to that, we had none um, you know, before this movement, right? It, it really yeah. wasn't, there was not any work to do because no one thought there was a problem. Now there's a lot more regulations around what's reported, how you deal with the medical error. And so most hospitals or, or large healthcare organizations have some individual, whether they call them a patient safety officer or not, that does deal with them and, you know, presides over um, what we call a formal root cause analysis sort of understand the causal factors, to develop and oversee um, action plans, you know, changes in the system designed to prevent that same error from happening again. So while I don't directly oversee that anymore at HOP, I'm still very involved with the people that do and work more on the proactive side. Something called safety safety two, which is the presence of safety and um, again helping everyone sort of not be scared of reporting understand how reporting can contribute to a learning culture a positive culture. uh, Teaching them about safety behaviors something that I know we're going to get into Dave when we talk about our checklist.
0: Well, let's jump over and talk about the checklist. Uh, But one, one other question: Like, what? what, How would you estimate is the error rate in medicine? Like, how, how high is the error rate?
1: Well, you know, you're always going to go back to the seminal paper uh, from uh, the late '90s, which was 44 Mm -hmm. to 98,000 deaths per year Mm from medical error in hospitals. Um, And that number was corroborated by two other very large studies with similar robust methods. One, the first study was um, uh, in New York hospitals, 30 New York hospitals. The second study was in Utah and Colorado, uh, several hospitals. And the third was in Australia. But Canada and England, England, the country of England, very similar rates. Um, If you take the low estimate, I think we would agree it's a lot. and you know the studies that have been done since then um, have not shown a big change. Okay. I, I say that with the caveat that um, uh, you know medical error is a very heterogeneous thing.
0: Sure. So
1: in other words, death from let's say catheter-associated bloodstream infection, something very specific. That the healthcare industry has worked, spend millions of dollars and millions of hours on that has decreased substantially in the U.S. Okay. And I think we would all agree it's a preventable adverse event. It's a never event. When you and I trained, <clears throat> somebody got a bloodstream infection from their central line. It was well, they got a bloodstream. Like it was, it was, it was considered unavoidable. Now right. it's not. There's so many other types of. Mm-hmm. medical errors it, it can be it, it's, it's a challenging measurement game
0: it's like a game of whack-a-mole huh?
1: yeah it's it's true it it, it 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 certainly can be seen that way and the studies that have been done are primarily in hospitals although there are an increasing um number of studies rightfully so being done in the ambulatory setting because that is where you know more and more care is shifted to sure. and frankly there's more opportunities there because the patient, right, is responsible or in some ways responsible for a lot of what does or doesn't happen after they leave the office, whereas in the hospital, they're under watchful eye, right, so they shouldn't be responsible for anything.
0: Yeah, I've read that they've done some research where they, they look at an outpatient setting, and, and they witness the encounter, and they look at the, what's charted, and, and and then, like expert panel, kind of grades what what happened versus what should have happened, and they find that the error of sort of omission is like fifty percent, you know. So like half the things that should have gotten done don't get done in a typical outpatient encounter, which you could think is, is a horribly high error rate, or you could also think, wow, the glass is half full. They they yeah. they, knocked, they they got fifty percent of the things that they needed to get done done in a very short period of time, but. Um, Arguably, in an outpatient setting, it might we might have a much higher rate of error. It's just maybe less deadly errors, perhaps.
1: Yeah, and the way you describe their methods, um, that's the exact methods that those other studies in the hospital used. Okay. Right? So they, they identified people that died or had a serious adverse event in the hospital, and then using several physicians sort of reviewing that event and all the facts around it determined whether they thought it was preventable or not.
0: <clears throat> awesome. So let's, let's jump over and, and, uh, start picking your brain for w- what would be uh, like the checklist. So w- we want to build a checklist that people can follow to reduce, uh, to improve their safety. W- what would you recommend we title this thing?
1: Ah, uh, what should we title it? Um, I-, I think questions for your doctor, questions for your healthcare team, you know, The, um, I think it's hard, right? I think patients and families don't know medical lingo or language and it can um, feel frightening or scary for them to to ask a question. But we as healthcare providers really need to make a more opening, uh, welcoming environment for them because no one cares more about the patient than the patient and their family member. And that brings me to the first part of the checklist, which is have a family member with you whenever possible. You know, whether you have somebody at the bedside in the hospital, bringing somebody with you to your visit. And, you know, that gets, you could say arguably, obviously gets more important if you're you're elderly, um, certainly for children, but, Oh, thank you, Dave. Uh, I think that is—it's just another set of eyes and ears. And and you know, face it, when you're sick, you know, it's it's hard to think straight about anything. And if you can have that um, advocate by your side, kind of taking notes, being a second set of eyes and ears, it's really really helpful.
0: Awesome. Okay, that's that's a that's a good one. And and you know, that's a recurring theme and primary care in general, like w- when we run our different programs for um, managing or, or reversing chronic diseases, it's always most helpful to have another uh, another partner, someone who's going to support you. So yeah. I really like that one. So that, and then you put that first and foremost, make uh, sure. Uh,
1: definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's one way, just as an aside, it's one reason why children's hospitals have really, you um, led the pack in a lot of the patient safety and error work because they routinely embed families, parents in rounds or in the, right? They have to. (laughs) If you think about the last time you brought your, your son or daughter to the, right? You're asked, you're there asking the questions.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. We don't, we don't uh, learn, learn from our pediatrician colleagues probably nearly enough.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we're, yeah.
0: We're all crybabies uh, babies our whole lives, I guess, right? <laughs> to put it very so, undelicately.
1: Right, 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 right. I, I would say um, the second yeah. um, is more is not always better in healthcare. So if your doctor recommends a test or a procedure or a medication, that's that's just their recommendation. Um, and, you know, all of the things that I mentioned have potential unintended consequences. Now, usually the benefits outweigh the risks and that's why they're recommending it. But I think as a patient sort of asking, um, you know, why do I need this? What would be the alternative to not getting this? Um, you know, a lot of times I teach my, my residents, you know, Sometimes people would rather use time as a diagnostic test. You know, let's say, um, I don't know, you're having uh, anxiety and your doctor recommends a medication and you ask for the side effects and you hear them and you've always been a little wary about taking pills and you ask them, well, what's the alternative? They might say, well, you don't use medications and maybe you go to talk therapy with a psychologist or, you know, maybe um, you do talk therapy and and give that a couple of months and then we can revisit a medication. Like just, I think for the patient to know that there's a choice is key.
0: Amen. I, Amen. I really like that one. Um, some of my favorite health related books are in this field of healthcare delivery science and Dr. Gilbert Welch's books, uh, Less Medicine, More Health and Overdiagnosed come to Love mind. Love
1: that. Yeah, love that one. Love that one. Absolutely.
0: So they overdiagnosed just screams of, you know, less is more. Don't you know? Think you know? Think twice and ask those hard questions. So, but I really like the way you framed it as ask that question. What are the alternatives? Right.
1: Right. Right. The the third one, and and you're gonna love this one as a primary care doctor. Um, if you have a test, don't assume that no news is good news. I think that's, you know, as a, how many times have we heard from our patients, why I didn't hear anything. So I assumed it was okay. I I just think (laughs) as much as, as much as I want to say, our healthcare systems are error proof. They're, they're not, you know, there's humans behind them. There's a lot of it behind them, but it can fail in lots of different ways. And I think, you know, as the patient and or patient advocate, you you got to call back. You have to follow up.
0: You know, and that's key because, and you know, our healthcare system. You know, pe- people's job is that which they get paid to do, and your doctor is not really getting paid to call you back with the results. That that's like a drag on their time, and and the more of that they have to do, the the closer they come to going into bankruptcy. So so if if you know if you notice that your doctor is is sort of um, not putting the emphasis on that kind of activity that you you wish it's the the, the reason is economic um, so th- I think that's a big part of it but, it but it also has to do with the complexity and, and whether they would have even gotten the report uh, whether the right person whether it was channeled to the right person in the office and whether the right person signed off on it whether that person was a little sleepy at the time they signed off sometimes things you know your your, your provider is is signing off I can tell from a primary care perspective You're signing off on dozens of reports. It's managing your inbox and just trying to get through this inbox. And you just want to get through as quickly as possible. You don't want to spend hours and hours charting. So you you take shortcuts. You don't read every single word. And sometimes you might miss something.
1: Amen. Absolutely. So as a patient, you know, you have to take take that into your own hands.
0: I I love that. And we got to shout that. If nothing else, we have to shout that from the rooftops. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um I'm looking at, at uh, some of the things, other things I, I jotted down here, uh, Dave. Um, there's something called um, Ask Me Three. I, I just wanted to mention it um, because it's gotten a lot of press from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And it's trying to get patients to um, ask three simple questions of their doctor. Uh, what is my main problem? What do I need to do? And why is it important for me to do this? And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Um, uh, in my practice in the hospital, I try to make a habit, particularly on the last day of a patient's stay, just to ask them, you know, if they can articulate to me, you know, what have we been treating you for here? Do you know? Right. Um, and what do you think is the most important thing for you to do when you go home? And it's, um, it's very eye-opening to hear some of the responses, and you know, we get so harried in in our in our work with 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 telling patients and not doing enough of the listening. There's there's a, a strategy that a lot of the nurses use at at Penn called, and it's not specific to Penn, but but teach back, kind yes. of like after they kind of share something with a patient, asking them to say it back to them in, in your own words, and. I think it's a great strategy. I know when I'm learning something for the first time, just being able to articulate it myself helps to <laughs> kind of get those neurons connecting and helps me to make sure that I got it right.
0: Right, so t- you know, basically talking out what, what, what's going on and yep. giving a narrative to it in, in yeah. some way with, with, yep. with, with, your prov- with your provider, right? You need to bounce it off your healthcare team, right?
1: Right. Right.
0: Okay. That's a good one.
1: Um, you know, uh, the next one um, that I think we have to talk about is medications. Just sort of medications <laughs> as its own category. Um, I, I'm on a deprescribing kick. I, well, I think we all should be on a deprescribing kick after a recent... Uh, health issue with my father, but gosh, there's so many um, medication interactions and side effects. And, you know, it takes a second to prescribe them, right? You, You and I know it's easier to prescribe a medicine than to sit down and have a five or 10 minute conversation with someone. So I would say always having your medication list on you with the doses what they're for, like in just plain, simple language, for my blood pressure, for my headaches, um, you know, the dose and who prescribed them. Um, And uh, a notebook with you, particularly like if you're in the hospital or before you go to the doctor, um, kind of always be writing down your questions.
0: Yep. And and probably appropriate to continuously revisit this list of medicines and ask oh. the question, is this really, do I yeah. still need to be taking this medicine, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm sure you've had this. It's always, when a patient comes to you and says like, do I need to be on like all of these? It, uh-huh. It's You know, it's usually the answer is no. Usually the answer is no, and that we can trim back in in some way. Can, um. Can-
0: I was going to ask for like examples or uh, the prime examples of drugs that you are often trimmable back.
1: Or... Oh, yeah. Um, well, uh, PPIs, so acid suppression medications, people often get put on them for vague symptoms and they never get taken off.
0: Yeah, that was um, sort of top of my list too.
1: Yeah. Um, I even think you know, it, it, again, it depends on the circumstances, but some antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents and sleep agents, you know, if it, if it's working for you and you can articulate the the difference, okay, keep taking it. But if it's not, you know, like give yourself a certain period of time and then have a conversation with your doctor about coming off of it. Don't just keep sort of adding pills on. Um,
0: and, and beware of the, yeah, the ones that have some of those kind of nagging side effects, like you mentioned sleep aids, but, um, you know, some of the anticholinergics. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and these are, it, these unfortunately accumulate, especially as we get older, and they've actually correlate with higher rates of long-term dementia and, um, and slowing cognition. So at a time when the last thing we need is to be slowing our cognition and increasing our risk of dementia, we're, we find ourselves on several of these anticholinergic drugs.
1: Right, right, you know, and I, um, you know, since, um, you know, this, this podcast is for a lay audience, I think we have to just, just touch under the medication category on, on pain medicines and opiates. And, you know, I, I know my practice has changed um, for the better in terms yeah. of just, you know, really being judicious in the number of pills I prescribe no refills um, and, and, you know, just trying to match the severity of the pain with the treatment.
0: Almost merits its own, uh, its own step on, on this yeah. list because of just the, the severity, the impact. I mean, we, we're seeing literally the life expectancy in the United States declined from uh, 2010 to 2017. Uh, and it's mostly because of the use of opiates. So, so this idea, and this is this is the practice at the time, and you and I both lived through it, Jen. But um, and we became, I became part of that machine. I mean, this is just was the yeah. era of the day um, that if if somebody has a significant enough chronic back problem or whatever, you start you start uh, an opiate and. Um, good luck
1: getting if, them off
0: if they're having more pain you're supposed to titrate up to the level of, of relieving the pain pain was the fifth vital sign now that yep. we're supposed to track and shame on you if you're ignoring people's pain remember that it's so I,
1: yeah.
0: amazing there are a
1: lot of uh drug companies made a lot of money off of that it's um yeah so
0: and a lot of people you know, died as a result And a
1: lot of people died as a result so definitely um you know for for the better, and you know our prescription drug monitoring systems are just a godsend now that we can see what other people are prescribing. Um, back to the checklist, I I you know this one is is pretty hospital and procedurally based, but asking your surgeon or procedure list, how many times have you done this before? You know. Or asking your primary care doctor who would you send your mom to you know like just uh, i think i know i would want to know right <laughs> I, I think you know they, they might seem like a little bit off-putting but right it's the patient's right
0: but you've got to gotta be able to ask that question in a way that you're going to get information back that's actionable right so it has to be sort of non-threatening enough, or maybe you can do that kind of research in the background a little bit. Um, but, you know, if, if it's in that charged moment when the doctor, the, the surgeon's in, in for five minutes to just make sure you're, everything's okay, you know, it's, it's kind of too late. You know, most people aren't going to have the gumption to dis- derail things or, or whatever the surgeon has to say, you're going to kind of interpret um, in, in the most positive light. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think of of ways of. I mean, to some extent, you want to shop up front even before you've engaged with that surgeon, if you can.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Dave. I think, you know, if 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 it's something elective where you have the time to get a second or third opinion, by all means, you know, if you need your hip or your knee repaired, you can do your research, um, make you know, at least two appointments and then, and compare, and you you get a feel for things, everything from how the front office treats you and, and, and manages your, your care to the surgeon's bedside manner. I think, you know, when you're in the hospital and it's, you know, urgent or emergent, I think we just don't have that luxury and we do have to rely on the professionals around us and, and their opinion.
0: You know, there's some mantras like, um, that, that, that don't hold hundred percent true but never do back surgery on uh, back pain for yeah. example you know if you ever hear some of these and, and obviously you can't completely hang your hat on them, but they, they can be helpful um, and I wonder if there's a you know I wonder if there's a way of getting that reality check because my guess is a lot of people who have a back problem and are getting channeled towards some kind of back surgery, a spinal fusion or something um, you know, uh, how many of them actually ever hear that, you know, there's other alternatives or, or let's talk about a knee replacement. You know, there, there's actually research that shows that um, people losing 10 pounds of weight is, is equally effective as getting the knee replacement for the long-term pain relief. So, wow. you know, and but are you going to find somebody who's aware of that knowledge? Are you going to find somebody who's, who's um, willing to say, you know, and by golly, I think you can do it and I'm going to help you do it. You know, that that's that's an unusual consultant that you're gonna go find. So maybe maybe the advice is seek the, the advice of a, a very a wide variety of docs, including some people who might be more skeptical or, or more knowledgeable about the alter- some of the alternatives.
1: Yes, no, I think that's I think that's great advice. And I think you know, your area of expertise, Dave, lifestyle medicine is not talked about nearly enough i think we we're, we're both waiting for the days when that and nutrition are are taught in medical school you know at the same time they they, they give us pharmacology it's you know it, it, you know it's the product of how we're trained and and you know what we're schooled to do
0: right but you know the other thing is i feel like there needs to be a resource that really shows the value of these these procedures like because some surgeries are much more um, beneficial than others in general, right? Like hip replacement is one of the best we have to offer. This this is the wor- world according to Dave, and I could be to, <laughs> correct me if I'm off on this stuff. But from what I read, hip replacement is, tends to be uh, have a very high success rate, a very high customer satisfaction rate, and a very low rate of complication. But but as you as you uh, kind of stray away from that that particular procedure, things get a little bit more murky. And I, I gave the example of the knee replacement is not nearly as good. So So this kind of knowledge, I mean, sort of this baseline expectation that um, some surgeries are more effective than others. I I, I wanna find a way of getting that information out there too. Maybe that's another checklist or something like that, but I think this is good. So um, getting that second opinion, that third opinion, um, get a diversity of opinions. Ask people who truly don't have any, any vested interest in getting the surgery done. Um, all that stuff, uh, is probably, uh, helpful.
1: Um, one more, I don't know if we're going to get to 10, but, but one more, I think, and this is particularly helpful for the, the patient or the, your, the patient's loved one who's in the hospital is when somebody new walks in the room, asking them who they are and what, you know, what team are you from? And, you know, it's, it, it's so confusing. Right. Everybody wears a white coat these days or wear scrubs these days. And, you know, um, uh, not every doctor or, or nurse or nurse practitioner, for that matter, will will tell you their name, give you their card, be really clear. And you need to know that as the patient.
0: That's a good point. I mean, so keeping a, a journal.
1: Yes. Right? Yeah. Right?
0: Probably keep a journal. Of- yeah. And, and this certainly goes for in-hospital. <clears throat> Hopefully, people are in a, in a state of mind to be able to do that. Not everybody is. So maybe that's where you're...
1: Well, that goes back to number one.
0: Yeah. That, yeah.
1: that, re- that really goes back to number one. And Dave, you know, when this really became so clear was during COVID. When it, you, we had no family members. Right. It was so hard. I, I never realized how critical patients and families were. I, I never until yeah. we we could have none of them,
0: and oh I spend,
1: and I spend part of my time, as you know, in a long term acute care facility where half the patients are on ventilators, oh. and just just not having the hand to hold the the family member to say, yo, yeah, they're getting better, no, they're still a little bit off, uh-huh. so so hard.
0: Oh my gosh, you're like flying blind, right?
1: Yeah, um, totally. Totally. I would think
0: this journal concept might, might have some relevance in an outpatient setting too. I mean, you know, maintaining that memory of, of what is happening to you, right?
1: Uh, you know, I think so. I, you know, um, uh, I have a chronic disease as do many of, of our friends and relatives. And, um, uh, you know, when you go into your healthcare provider, just being able to quickly look at dates or what you talked about the last time or how long you've been on a certain medication. I I, I agree. Um, You know, in in Europe, in particular in Italy, um, all of the hospital rooms have beds for the family members. And most patients keep like a binder of their healthcare materials. It's a very different culture. I'm Italian, so I have some relatives who've told me about this, but I, I really think there's no
0: replacement for it. I that's so great. Here again, um, learning from the wisdom of places where they do things totally differently than us. Um, highly cool. So, um, well, maybe I won't put that as a checklist item bring a cot to the hospital. Yeah, just to your loved one. But at least keeping a health journal and, and that trying to maintain that memory of what's happening and, and both in the inpatient setting but also in the outpatient setting. I have to say, for as a primary care doc. Um, people don't necessarily remember what's happened. I mean, my wife was just telling me an experience where a patient was just deriding her for not having that mammogram report. And, uh, and Debbie's scrambling to try to find it. And, and it turns out that the woman hadn't had a mammogram in over three years. So she was misremembering that she had a mammogram. (laughs) Um, But, but people just don't necessarily remember what, what shot they had and um, so I think it's a complicated healthcare system we've, we've created for people with lots of jargon. It so is. it's appropriate to write, write these things down.
1: It is. Um, I think recently for me with my dad having healthcare problems, I, I can't imagine going through it. If he didn't know somebody on the inside, you know, I just think it's, it's, unless you are highly educated and or you know, advocating for yourself, it's really hard.
0: I'm going to, yeah, and thank goodness you were there. And uh, I wish everybody had the benefit of a Dr. Jen to uh, oversee. <laughs> My gosh, I'm an <laughs> expert in, in uh, health safety. Uh, I, I'm going to move that one up to number two, because I think it's yeah. kind of like one of those fundamental things that you want to get in place at the, at the whole outset. Um, great. So we, we've run through eight things. Is there anything else on your list that you can think of?
1: um maybe asking them if they've washed their hands
0: that's
1: basic but you know i think it's, uh, it's a good one if you don't see the doctor or nurse wash their hands before they touch you
0: and how about you know i've had this thought about the stethoscope too like you know when i take the stethoscope out and listen to a patient you know so sometimes in, the, in over the years, and I <laughs> it, lately I don't pull out the stethoscope, but I don't think it's gonna be at all helpful, but I, I've had the thought that really I'm doing you a disservice by putting the stethoscope against you because I mean, I've cleaned it, but it's it's been around the block, the stethoscope, and your lungs are gonna be fine. And I'm doing this so that I can document that I did a physical exam, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, you're, you're remiss, you, you're deficient if you are not doing a physical exam. It's part of our training. And so a lot of what we do is this ritual, uh, right? And and not necessarily beneficial. So so I, I'm just, I guess I'm saying, did you wash your hands, number one? And um, do, you, do we really need to do a physical exam? And where has that stethoscope been? And when was the last time you cleaned that thing, right? And by the way, you have a tie that's touching my hospital bed. And I've read research that um, that we can culture all sorts of nasty bacteria from our ties. And, and when did you wash your white coat? I mean, this could get to be a very nasty conversation, right, but if patients knew the reality, they would be asking that question, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It, now it's making me remind me I need to put um, more alcohol pads in the, the pocket of my white coat for, uh, <laughs> to clean off my stethoscope.
0: Right. I mean, because we go from room to room, we, we docs in the hospital are the, are the vector, or as in the docs, the staff in general, are yeah. the vector for some of these diseases like C. difficile or all the other bacterial illnesses that are, or viral illnesses that are moving around the hospital. Um, and, and the research shows that we are notoriously bad at doing the very simple act of washing our hands, right?
1: Yeah. You know, I just have to add one more. So we have to get to 10. Um, as you know, uh, Dave, in healthcare, there's, you know, when you get to a certain age, you're going to have multiple providers, um, and the chances that those providers are talking to each other is unknown. And you know, I, I'm trying to think about a way to empower patients to do this, but. Um, just asking your doctor, you know, have you talked to the cardiologist personally, or um, could you talk to my primary care doctor about this? I, 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 do, I do see I see us having more conversations that are team-based now that we're all becoming a little bit more savvy with virtual technology. But for, for me, even as a hospital-based physician, um, uh, oftentimes I find just picking up the phone and talking with the consultant um, rather than you know, trying to read through a trail of node, like you sometimes just can't get to the core nugget of information. Um, so, you know, making, trying to, we, the patients shouldn't have to facilitate that, but at least asking the question can sometimes prompt them to do it.
0: Well, going back to the notion that our job is that which we get paid to do Yep. And we docs don't get paid to talk to other docs. That's that's kind yep. of, you're wasting two doctors' time. Wasting, in quotes, but you're not, this is not billable. And not that everything has to be about the money, but it is all about the money. If if, if you're not getting paid to do it, then it's not part of your job. So that's, again, the system is set up to kind of discourage uh, that kind of communication. And And it, I'm wondering if you can think of ways that we can facilitate it. I mean, one thing is you mentioned ask, can you please talk to my endocrinologist? Uh, But probably making it a little bit more like it's something actually on my to-do list, like, yeah, I'll do that and then never do it. I mean, like, I'm going to ask you next time if you spoke with my cardiologist, something, I don't know, uh, or I have the cardiologist number here and he said it's okay if I call or she said it's okay if I call at this hour. Is okay if I dial it up right now? I mean, I don't know. What do you think?
1: I mean... I I do think um, having more conversations with the patient and their family, like in on the conversation is, is good. Um, In the hospital, for example, we don't do it enough, but when we can round like with the specialist, like at the bedside, I mean, it's like outstanding.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, I guess a different way that I've been trying to do it, it flips it a little bit, but I started doing it during COVID, but I've continued, continued to do it, is get patients, loved one or family members on the phone much more frequently when I'm in there with them. Particularly if they're above a certain age, or I know that there are some questionable cognitive issues. Um, just, just ask them, do you mind if I do want to get your husband on the phone while we talk about the plan? Or it's, it's super helpful.
0: Yeah, uh, that's uh I, I like that a lot. So maybe as you walk in the room, um, your your very first act is to grab that cell phone and pull out the and and start dialing the number and maybe even putting some of these family members on, in your address book or something like that. Yeah. I, I guess we can't do it that way because then we're we're giving away our cell phones. But right. so how, how do you get them on the phone? You have to um
1: I mean, I don't know. I've what I we we have an emergency contact for every patient, and um, you know, so we know the number. The question is, you know, if the patient would like us to do that and thinks it would be helpful. Ah. I just got out my phone. <clears throat> I look on the computer for the number. I put them on speakerphone, and then we're talking together.
0: Okay. Or or you could even ask the patient. Or do you? Or the patient
1: could or the patient could do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And some patients. Um, and there are a few who will do that. Like, Oh, I want to get my daughter on the phone. And so I'm seeing a little bit more of that. Um, and even, you know, facilitated a bit more with COVID as we're getting even t- savvier with technology.
0: Um, that, that can slow the doc down because the doc is like a hospital is trying to see 20 or 30 people in a day. Right. And if they have to wait for every single person to get called.
1: Yeah. And like, it's not going to be for, for everyone, but it's, it's time well spent right like that's better time spent than listening to the lungs <laughs> if the patient has belly pain and nothing wrong with their lungs you know um
0: yeah good point right <laughs> oh my gosh so that that is that's another good one um and again i think jen you're you're exposing some of the glaring holes in well in healthcare in general some of it's avoidable and some of it isn't um, but you know, communication doesn't really happen much. Um, you would think it does, and oftentimes the issue is we patients we assume the system works better than it really does. We assume it's more error error free. We assume there's more communication. We assume people are washing their hands. Um, we assume that uh, patients are always shocked when they ask me something and I haven't received the report or. Um, I I don't, I didn't even know they were in the hospital and it's just like, we didn't get the information.
1: Yeah. It makes you feel dumb and it makes you embarrassed for our healthcare system, doesn't it?
0: Right. And, and for our our own personal uh, shortcomings Uh, and, and yeah, so it it can make you feel quite bad appropriately. So, but I think the overall theme here is be your own advocate and be very proactive in, in your healthcare, both in the outpatient basis and the inpatient basis.
1: And, and Dave, I think we're going to see, I think, you know, you and I couldn't have imagined this thing 30 years ago.
0: Um,
1: I think we're, we're, I think the, the, the theme of patients controlling more, wanting to know more, being more in charge of their healthcare is only going to grow. And I, I think it's for the best. Do you? There's too much to go wrong if, um, uh, you know, not that patients can be their own doctor, they can't, they clearly don't have the knowledge base, but the more they're interested in asking questions and following up, the safer they're going to be.
0: So let me ask you this, Jen, to close. Um, so th- I think this is a, a nice little list and, and good on you for coming up with 10. This is a great length. Um, if everyone were to follow this checklist on a, on a routine basis, like every time they, they engage with the healthcare system every appointment, every hospitalization, every time they're about to start a new drug. Um, what, what would be, what do you think would be the outcome?
1: Well, I, I think healthcare would be safer. I don't think it would eliminate, you mm-hmm. know, preventable adverse events, but I, I think it would be a heck of a lot, a heck of a lot better. Okay. Um, you know, healthcare is, too complex to, to go it alone and, and not ask any questions.
0: Right, so there's a lot of opportunity for I think so. savings, life savings potentially, if people were to follow this particular checklist. Great, well maybe we'll put it on a, on a handout and uh, make it something that docs can print out and uh, share with their patients and patients yeah. can print out and share with their providers. Right, we need, we all, we're all in this together and, uh, right, it's, it's not, you know, error doesn't happen. It's, it's kind of a two-way street, right?
1: Agreed. Agreed. And actually involving patients and families in their care is one of the National Patient Safety Goals for that reason.
0: Amen. I love it. Well, let's see, Jen, any closing thoughts before we let you get back to your life?
1: Um, I don't think so, Dave. Just thank you. Um, this is the first podcast I've ever done. I've, I've been a consumer. <laughs> but I've never actually been the star of one. And so um, this has been really fun. And I thank you for having me.
0: Oh, my gosh, you are the star. You are the star of the health rules podcast. I am so honored to have had you today, Jen. I've always been honored to be in your presence. But to finally have this conversation where we dug in a little deeper and, and really kind of started to tease apart some some truly actionable steps that people can take. Uh, I am grateful and I might just have to ask you in the future to to um, for a repeat performance on perhaps a, another topic. Would love to. Awesome. Well, you be well. Take care. And uh, again, many, many thanks, Jen. Thank you. All right. Bye.
1: Bye.